Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Health Mystery Solved, Thyroid and Hashimoto's Revealed. Before I tell you about Allison's story for today's case, I wanted to let you know that if you struggle with Hashimoto's and hypothyroid symptoms, I am here to support you and I will be doing a free Hashimoto's training on March 1st, where I will show you what it means to support Hashimoto's with a two-fold approach and all of the details about that and how you can figure out your thyroid and Hashimoto's type so that you can start reversing your symptoms. This is not one of those kind of free trainings where I talk about myself for 20 minutes and give you a bunch of things that you don't need. We get into the content right away and I have so, so much that I wanna share with you so that you can see exactly what you can do for you to start supporting and eliminating your annoying and frustrating symptoms. If you've not attended one of my free trainings before, I promise you it is going to be so valuable. And afterwards, you'll know how to lower antibodies, how to lose weight, gain energy, eliminate brain fog, regrow hair, improve fertility, normalize your digestion, help you to get better sleep, and really feel like you're in control of your thyroid and your body, which I think is huge. And even if you have attended one of my trainings before, I tailor the training to the group. So there's always something that's going to be a little different and it will be more and more specific to you. The training will be on March 1st and it's going to be in my private Facebook group. It also is going to be over Zoom in case you don't have Facebook, so don't worry about that. The benefit of the Facebook group, if you do a Facebook, is that for a whole week before the training, I'm there in the group every single day, providing extra content, getting to know you better, answering your questions and sharing information. This way you get so much even before the event, and then it helps me to tailor the training even more to you and what you need the most right now. So all you have to do to sign up is go to www.thyroidmysterysolved.com slash listen thyroidmysterysolved.com slash listen. The training is going to be March 1st at 2 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be live, but if you're working or can't make it live, don't worry. There will be a recording and the recording is going to be available for a few days after the training. Also, I'm going to be doing live Q&As the day after the training and the day after that as well. So there's going to be so much support, so much information. I'm really, really, really excited to connect with you. So if you haven't attended, this is definitely an event that you don't want to miss. And if you have attended before, there's so much more information. It's going to be different than what you may have seen in the past. And I know you're going to get so much value. So you could sign up for free thyroidmysterysolved.com slash listen. I am so, so excited to see you there and to support you much more. And now on to today's case. Meet Allison. She has hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's, and she also experiences a ton of digestive issues. She's gassy, bloated, and has trouble going to the bathroom. She feels constant discomfort in her midsection all the time. Allison had tried many different things, like taking all types of probiotics, eating super nutritious fermented foods, and doing colon cleanses, but nothing really helped. When I met Allison, I saw that she's taken all types of gut support vitamins and that she also included healthy things in her diet. But even with all of that, she was missing a lot of crucial things that are specific to her that were at the core of her health mystery. Every year, 
thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know, because that was me, before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about all of Allison's struggles, and joining me on the show today to talk much more about this is Dr. Vincent Pedre, aka America's Gut Doctor. He's an internist and the author of the upcoming book, The Gut Smart Protocol. Dr. Pedre, I'm so excited to have you. Welcome. It's an honor. Thank you, Ina, for having me. And uh, I think we're going to have a really engaging conversation. I think people are going to really like this, especially in the context of this case. Yeah. So, you know, gut is definitely at the center of everything, right? All of our health. But it plays such a big role when it comes to hypothyroidism, autoimmunity, and really Hashimoto's more specifically. And the gut is something I talk about a lot on the show, but there's just so much there. It's just, it's always a lot to unpack and explore and there's always new things. And so I'm so excited to dig in, but just to make sure that everyone is on the same page, can you tell us a little bit more about why the gut has such a relationship to autoimmunity and Hashimoto's especially? Yeah, uh, I want to start with mentioning the work of Alessio Fasano. He was studying the effects of gluten on the gut and also looking at how gluten can be a trigger for autoimmunity. When he was looking at this, what he found was that gluten can actually trigger the release of a, of a substance, um, protein, it's called zonulin, that is a messenger that then increases gut permeability. So it controls the permeability of your gut, uh, very much like a dimmer switch controls how bright the lights are. So more zonulin is going to make your gut more permeable. And gluten seems to have an effect on this. So when he was looking at this, he came up with a theory of how autoimmune disease can evolve. And it involves three things. One is a genetic predisposition. So you might have been born with the genes for, you know, with a predisposition to Hashimoto's. It doesn't mean necessarily you're going to develop it during your life. And now we know that genes are under epigenetic control. So genes is just the blueprint, but how it is expressed can be very different depending on what you're exposed to, the foods you eat, the stress, how you're raised, environmental pollutants, all sorts of things affect how genes are expressed. So he came up with a three-trigger hypothesis for what, what creates autoimmune disease. So number one is genetic predisposition. Second is an environmental trigger. And here, what he looked at was gluten as an environmental trigger because gluten almost mimics what, when our body sees gluten, it thinks it's seeing a bacteria, but also noting that gluten can increase intestinal permeability. And that leads us to the third component of what then leads to the dysregulation of the immune system that eventually can lead to autoimmune disease, which is leaky gut. So the three pieces are genetic predisposition, an environmental trigger, here it's gluten, and leaky gut. Now, interestingly, one of the enzymes that helps break down gluten 
or gliadin, which is the protein molecule in gluten, is called tissue transglutaminase. People might see it as short as TTG. So tissue transglutaminase goes in and it's like a scissor. So it's trying to cut the gluten molecule. But what happens sometimes is that you get this chimeric molecule that's half gliadin, so it's part gluten and part tissue transglutaminase. And that new molecule gets presented to the white blood cells. So one thing, so let me backtrack. Um, I'm sure your listeners know this already, but I, I will say it again in case they don't, that 80% of our immune system is all along the gut lining. And how that immune system is behaving, how active, how well controlled, how balanced is going to affect how your immune system behaves in the rest of your body. So this chimeric molecule, tissue transglutaminase and gliadin, now looks different to the body. If your white blood cells that line the intestines that are like patrols, they're checking and seeing what's coming through these specialized cells called dendritic cells, if they see tissue transglutaminase, they're going to swallow it and they're going to say, oh, this is just self. It's fine. No problem. But now they swallow a tissue transglutaminase attached to a gliadin protein from gluten. It no longer looks like self. And the white blood cell is going to say, oh, this looks like a bacteria. This is something invading. I need to present this to the part of the immune system that creates antibodies, the B cells, T cells, and form an antibody response. Well, where else is tissue transglutaminase found in high concentration? Turns out that it's found in the thyroid. And so you can get cross-reactivity. So once it's reacted to this chimeric molecule, it might, the immune system, now remember, there's leaky gut also. So a person who's developing an autoimmune disease Maybe, I'm going to say there are probably more than one environmental trigger. Maybe, maybe they've been on multiple antibiotics for all sorts of things, UTIs, respiratory infections. And every time you go on an antibiotic, it's decimating, it's destroying your gut microbiome. And it can take anywhere from 6 to 12 months for that gut microbiome to recover. And that's if you don't have another round of antibiotics within that time. So each time, that's altering the the presence of good bacteria that help maintain that the integrity of that gut border. So you're getting leaky gut, you get more inflammatory molecules coming in that are activating the immune response. Now your immune system is looking at a part of tissue transglutaminase and saying, this does not look like self anymore. And it's going to go around the body and look for other places where that tissue transglutaminase can be, one of them being the thyroid. So then you get the immune system now starting to attack self. And if you have other things that are powering this immune response, you're just going to keep activating and activating and activating it until eventually enough of the thyroid has become inflamed, the thyroid tissue has been lost, and the person develops hypothyroidism or low thyroid and may have to go on um, thyroid hormone replacement because their thyroid isn't capable of producing enough thyroid hormone for the demands of the body. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the way to, you know, kind of thinking about like how this, this process may evolve 
And this can happen over the course of years. So it's not something that necessarily is immediate, but it does take multiple hits. And eventually you end up with an autoimmune disease. Right. Yeah. I love how you explain that. We talk about molecular mimicry a lot, but in the way that you actually explain it step by step, it really makes a lot of sense. Now, one question that I know my listener probably will have for you that I wanted to ask you is when the transglutaminase is then sort of taking the scissor, right? And digesting or breaking down the gluten protein, right? Is it, and then the body sees that combination and attacks it, is that going to be in everyone or only those who have the sensitivity or genetic predisposition to not being able to process it? It's a great question. There's going to be different susceptibilities depending on the person. And obviously women have a higher rate of Hashimoto's than men. So women uniquely have a eight times as greater risk of developing Hashimoto's than men. So they have higher risk for autoimmune disease. And it's going to depend on a multitude of factors. You know, maybe one person eats a lot of gluten. And so they're powering that system all the time. And eventually the whole thing breaks down. Maybe another person just gluten isn't a big part of their diet and they have the genetic predisposition, but they're not getting a lot of the environmental exposure in that sense. So they don't end up developing Hashimoto's down the road. Right. There's a lot of factors, and even I think stress is a very, really important factor um, that we can talk about. You know, it all has to do with control and regulation of the immune system, which is happening at the gut interface. It depends on your micronutrient status, uh, vitamin D status. There's a lot of factors, even vitamin K2, that are affecting whether your immune system is going to, you know, play well in the sandbox, or it's going to become a precocious child that's going to start attacking self. And, you know, we talk about triggers a lot. And, you know, there's all these triggers, as you mentioned, you know, gluten, environmental things, bacteria, microbes. And, you know, sometimes someone can be affected by a trigger. And then maybe two years later, it could be the same trigger and they may not be affected. And it's because, as you said, their stress might be lower or higher, right? Depending on what's going on or, or there could be other triggers. So sometimes it could be like this perfect storm situation for sure. It's very important to recognize that, that stress is a big mitigator of the immune response in both directions. It can overactivate the immune system or it can actually suppress your immune system depending on, you know, is it chronic stress or is it an acute stressor. Now, what about the microbiome, right? We, I think, understand the gluten connection. And people with Hashimoto's ask me all the time, does it mean I have to be off gluten and never, ever eat gluten again? You know, and I explain to them what you've mentioned, right? And, and it is different, but for the most part, you know, I think, and I don't know if you agree, but I think that most people with Hashimoto's do better without gluten for the exact reason that you mentioned. It's, it's very true. And also understanding that it's very different once you've activated the system, you know, our immune system works on memory and has all these memory cells. And those memory cells are programmed to reactivate with a very small trigger. So it doesn't have to be. So whereas the process to, be, to develop Hashimoto's or autoimmune thyroiditis could have taken years, once it's activated, you have these memory cells that can be triggered really quickly, um, and it doesn't take a lot. And I'll tell you, I've had patients like that who have, you know, been really good 
stopped having gluten. Dairy is also a big one there. I want to mention dairy because a lot of people with Hashimoto's have gluten and dairy uh, sensitivity as their triggers. And she had been really good for a year. She was listening to me. And then she went to see a doctor, an allergist who told her, that's nonsense. You can have dairy. You can have gluten. She had, she had a kid and they had a birthday party and she had a cake. Then she had pizza. And she called me a week later because her energy crashed. Um, she was feeling horrible. She also had another autoimmune condition, ankylosing spondylitis. She had, was in severe back pain. And I thought, my goodness, I had only seen you three weeks ago and you were doing so great and you were following the diet and um, what was different? What changed? And she told me, well, I went to see this doctor and he said it was nonsense that I could eat dairy and gluten and that that's not affecting my disease. And my response to her, because I, I very much believe in teaching patients to be their own doctor, to be their own guru, I, I asked her, well, what do you think now? And of course she said, you know, she made the connection. I wanted her to make the connection that it affected me. And she's like, okay, I guess I can't eat gluten. I can't eat dairy. And it took about four to six weeks to resolve that by going gluten dairy free. So once you, you know, because you have these memory cells that are going to detect this, um, you know, it's different for different people. And I also like to talk about thresholds of exposure and it's kind of like, you know, if your bucket is full, it's going to spill over. You're going to have fire, inflammation. But sometimes there's, there's a certain threshold that if you stay below that, you might be able to tolerate a certain level of exposure. Now, the one thing you don't know if you're staying below the threshold, is it causing microinflammation, like low-grade inflammation, little by little, is eroding your health over time? Because as we know, inflammation is the common root cause of every chronic degenerative disease, and the gut is the biggest interface that can create inflammate, chronic inflammation in the body. I really like what you're saying about the microinflammation and being mindful of that. I have an example with myself personally. I, I don't eat gluten because of Hashimoto's, and when I do it, my antibodies do go up. It's a very clear connection. But with dairy, I don't necessarily feel bad from dairy, but I notice I do get just small little breakouts, not a big deal, but a little pimple here, a little pimple there. And, you know, when I talk to colleagues or friends, they're like, yeah, but that's not really a big deal, right? Like, so you put some makeup on. But to me, right, yes, having a pimple is not the end of the world. Obviously, there's much worse problems out there, but that's a sign something is happening, right? And I'm seeing it on the surface. So who knows what's happening on the inside that I can't see? Well, and we know, and I write about this a lot about the gut-skin connection and how certain bacteria in the gut can either improve skin health or they can actually make skin health worse. And what you're seeing on the surface is because that dairy is probably feeding certain type, certain parts of the microbiome that are going to increase skin inflammation and cause the bacteria in the skin to, um, maybe they're causing more oil secretion, the, the glands gets um, clogged, and then you get overgrowth of proteobacterium acnes, which then causes acne. And so there is a very strong gut connection to what you're seeing on the surface. So it's very important. You know, what you see on your skin is a reflection of what's happening inside your gut. Now, for those who might already be gluten and dairy free, and, you know, perhaps even grain free if they're doing AIP or other diets like that, what they're often told or may have, you know, read about is that, okay, we're going to do this diet for a certain period of time. 
And while we do it, we're going to then work on the gut and we're going to heal the leaky gut because that's obviously a really big thing which we want to do. And then once the gut is healed, right, if we don't have permeability anymore, then in theory, we should be able to tolerate those foods again or tolerate them better. What are your thoughts on that? It's complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, One, you didn't develop a leaky gut overnight. You cannot heal leaky gut overnight. So, you know, for some people, and I know we live in a very impatient society that wants results fast. We sure do. I mean, let's put this into perspective. Your small intestine has a surface area the size of approximately a tennis court. And that entire surface area needs to heal. That's not going to happen overnight. It takes time. And in order for it to heal, you have to remove all the factors and obstacles that will prevent it from healing, not just taking uh, a leaky gut supplement of a formula um, while still living your stressed out lifestyle and rushing from here to there and swallowing your lunch really fast you're not going to be able to heal your leaky gut because stress also is like an attack on the gut. So it's even though, yes, it's very important to understand what you can eat, what are the right supplements to take, you also have to understand the importance of the gut-brain connection and the role it plays in the integrity of the gut lining, as well as the gut microbiome, which if you've been on multiple rounds of antibiotics... Like I said, I mean, one five-day course of Cipro will take 12 months for your gut to recover from, and that's only five days. And that's the most common antibiotic or one of the most common antibiotics prescribed to women for UTIs. You know, we prescribe it as if it has no consequence, yet every time you take an antibiotic, there is a price to pay because your gut microbiome is getting decimated right? and that needs to be rebuilt. Yeah. And we'll talk about the rebuilding in just a second, but if, and I agree with you a hundred percent on that stress connection. I mean, that's huge. That's one of the big triggers in addition to, you know, the environmental stuff and the microbes and things like that. But if someone was to work on their gut and do all the right things and support their stress, and let's say it's been two years and they have not taken antibiotics and they have been doing it, do you think that it might be possible for them to eat certain foods that they were sensitive to before? It's very possible. Again, just think of a threshold issue. If you stay below the threshold, you're going to mostly be fine. If you cross the threshold, now you're causing gut permeability, you're causing inflammation, all those things. The thing I think where people go wrong is they go from zero to 60 immediately. And what you should really do if you're testing a food that you know caused problems in the past, is you should dip your toes in the water before you jump in fully. So you're going to test a small amount, see if you react, see how you feel. Now, understanding that reactions, if they're allergies, could be immediate, but if they're a sensitivity, which is what most people have, that reaction could be delayed by 72 hours. So you've got to observe for three days to see if there's some sort of shift, knowing and understanding kind of like what's your general state of being, like what are the typical symptoms that you might have from day to day, and looking for something that shifts within those symptoms or a new symptom that comes up that you normally don't have. And then you have to connect it to the food. And you might have to test more than once to see if that's true or not. You know, because one of the most important things 
when figuring out what's right for you to eat and what isn't is pattern recognition and seeing what patterns repeat over time. Yeah. And that keeping a food journal is so important and can be so helpful with this because we can't remember everything. We can't always go back and think, oh, wait, I felt this way yesterday, but it could have been my lunch, right? So writing it down makes such a difference. I mean, if I if I ask you, what did you eat last Friday for lunch? <laughs> no idea. You know, you may remember, maybe if there was a special event or something, oh, I was out with my friend and we went to this restaurant. And But if not, recall is very difficult and what I've noticed with patients when I've had them do food journals is that you realize how much you actually eat that you're not really conscious yes, of doing. That's a good point. The, the best one was a patient where I told them I knew they were doing so many things wrong. And, and I just said, you know what? Let's do a seven-day food journal. I'll see you again in a week. I want, or, or even I think I simplified it because they they're really busy. I'm like, let's just do it over the weekend. Let's do like Friday through Monday. And then I'll see you on Tuesday. And I saw them for follow-up. And before I can open my mouth, the patient says, I know what I did wrong. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> they had done the food journal and they knew exactly what they were doing that they weren't conscious of. Cause it, it really is amazing to me how much we don't pay attention to what we're eating or what we're putting in our mouths. Like you might, you might have a bar and you're not thinking about the bar. You're not thinking about all the ingredients that are inside that bar that might cause a problem for you. And really, I mean, what we're putting in our mouth is going to make everything in our body, right? So that's the most important thing to think about. And it's feeding your microbiome. And depending on what you eat, it's going to feed different parts of the microbiome. It could be feeding bad bugs. It could be feeding yeast, or it could be supporting and promoting your good bacteria, which is important and helping promote diversity in the guts. You have all this variety that actually has been shown to lower inflammatory markers in the body. Now, let's talk about the microbiome a little bit. I think that most people know the importance. And as you mentioned, you know, it controls so, so much. But it's it's also very complicated. It's very complex, right? It's not just about, okay, let's go and buy a really expensive probiotic that has, you know, 100 billion organisms or so and take that, right? I mean, that would be nice if that was the answer, but it, there is so much more to that. So we talked about the diet piece and ways to kind of decrease that inflammation. But what about then going in and actually supporting it. Do you feel like people need to look at what type of bad bugs they have and kill them off first before doing the recolonizing or do you do both at the same time? Give us a little bit more information on what your thoughts are on that. My training started with traditional Western medicine where if there's a bad bug, you attack it, you get rid of it. And then I went into, studied acupuncture. And then from there, I went into functional medicine, which is really about, yeah, cleansing out, clearing out the bad, but also supporting the good. And I can tell you in the 20 plus years that I've been a doctor, I've gone from being more aggressive to being less aggressive to kind of looking at the other side of the coin and thinking, okay, how can we support this environment so that it can rebalance itself if possible? And if that's not working, then yeah, let's target the bad bugs. Now that said, if you find a parasite in someone's stool report, stool test, and they're having symptoms consistent with that parasite, then you want to treat that parasite. If there's a clear pathogen that needs to be removed, a worm, a parasite, um, 
a yeast overgrowth, then a lot of times you're not going to get anywhere unless you get rid of the pathogen. But then there's those gray zones where you, yeah, you have some bugs in the gut that the person's not having major gut symptoms, but you know, they're having gut related health issues. Um, you know, again, like autoimmune is in that umbrella of gut related health issues going in there with an antimicrobial. Yeah. Could be one way to do things. It could be, you know, an aggressive approach, but in the bigger picture, is that going to serve the patient? Because now you're creating a new problem and you're going to have to help them recover from that. Or is it better to support the microbiome through diet, through fermented foods? And maybe the road is a little, little bit longer, but it's more sustainable and you, you can bring them back. You can bring the body back into homeostasis, into that balance uh, where they're healthy again. So I think there's not one size fits all. You've got to kind of treat each case individually and knowing their history, knowing what they've done, knowing how they react to things, and then understanding what is the, what is the right thing to do. Um, and really taking a gut, body, mind, spirit approach, because I think you really have to have that holistic viewpoint even if you're kind of like zeroing in and dealing with a gut health issue, what I've learned is so important. The gut health issue is just the portal into something much bigger in the body. And the the greatest healing happens when you're dealing with, uh, with it in all those levels. And it's interesting what you were saying about how you went from like being more aggressive to less aggressive. I think it's the same with me too. When I started my practice in 2005, definitely with my training and it was like the 4R protocol or I think the 5R at that point it was called that's what we do and like we just you know we're like we're doing this we're doing these herbs and we're attacking attacking and then we're you know recolonizing recolonizing and over the years that has really shifted for me too to more of that balance and it's interesting when I have uh, patients that I've seen you know, for many years and they'll come back like, oh, I have a gut issue again. Come on, let's go kill all the stuff off. And I'm like, all right, hold on a minute. <laughs> let's just see what's happening. And so I really do agree with you. Now, do you like to use stool testing um, to check for things or do you find that that's not as helpful for you anymore? I do at times. Um, but part of the reason is not just because the stool gives us a read on, you know, a stool PCR test gives a read on the, the microbiome. Because I still think that those results... Um, they, they may be elucidating, but they can also be misleading. So we have to be careful about what, what information is extracted from that data or what assumptions are made from that data, because I think we're still early on in understanding that. But there are other things that I really find to be valuable in those stool tests, like checking for calprotectin, which is an inflammatory marker, uh, lactoferrin, other inflammatory markers in the bowel, like MMP9, then looking at pancreatic function, pancreatic elastase, and seeing, you know, how is IgA secretion in the gut? Is it high? Is it low? Is there um, zonulin present? Are there anti-gliadin antibodies in the gut? You know, so all these things can help build a picture of, okay, what's the best approach for this person? And even though it's hard to gradate, you know, how bad the leaky gut is, you can kind of know it just clinically by doing a very thorough history and understanding all of the, the interconnections, what the person is dealing with and how you're going to have to approach them. And that's part of why, you know, having worked with patients for so long, um, when I 
sat down to come up with it with the idea for my second book, I wanted it to be a personalized approach, realizing that no two guts are the same and giving everybody who has a gut issue a one size fits all diet, I, I realize is not right. Because depending on how severe their gut issues are, they might not be able to tolerate fermented foods. And yet you might read a blog post that says, you know, it's, it's um, you know, proclaiming all the great benefits of eating fermented foods and you should incorporate fermented foods and you think, well, I should incorporate. So you start again, eating a bunch of fermented foods. And next thing you know, you feel bloated and sick and you feel horrible. And you're wondering, well, what's going on here? Well, it depends on what your gut state is, which is what I developed by creating a quiz. I call it the gut smart quiz to figure out the level of gut dysfunction, but also gut-related health issues that also tell me how dysfunctional your gut is. And then from there, understanding that depending on the state of your gut, there are different ways to eat for different gut types. I love that. And I love doing typing. Um, you know, as most people know, I do thyroid typing. And so I just think it's so important what you're saying that we're not all the same, not just with our thyroid, but our guts too. So we're going to have different gut types and different dysbiosis types, and the foods are going to be different. Now, Dr. Pedre, for fermented foods that you mentioned, and yes, there's so much out there about how important those are, but like you said, there's pros and cons and some people can't tolerate them. Is it typically because they have more dysbiosis or is it because they may have histamine issues? What are some of the reasons why someone may not be able to tolerate fermented foods? And is there a way to kind of ease into that? Yeah. So usually there are, there are different reasons. Like you mentioned dysbiosis, which is an imbalance between good and bad bugs in the gut. There can be yeast overgrowth. And if uh, you have a lot of yeast overgrowth, having ferments is going to cause a tremendous die-off and it's going to feel really uncomfortable. Histamine issues as well can cause intolerance, although histamine issues are usually related to gut border disturbances, the microvilli, the, um, not being able to make enough enzymes. So usually when you have histamine issues, you know you've got some sort of dysbiosis, you've got enzyme deficiency, you've got leaky gut, you have damaged epithelium. Um, and you also might have SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, or SIFO, which is small intestine fungal overgrowth, something less commonly recognized. And all these issues are going to make it very difficult for the person to tolerate ferments. So anybody who takes my quiz on in my book, The Gut Smart Protocol, if you come out under the severe category, you can't have any ferments. They're not allowed. You've got to get to the point where you're moderate. And even when you're at the moderate category, I tell people you've got to introduce them in very tiny amounts. And I consulted with fermentationist Summer Bach, um, who's an expert on fermentation. And I wanted to really drill down, like, how can people introduce ferments, you know, if they're, if they're had trouble with them in the past. So once someone scores moderate, you can introduce them but only a quarter teaspoon. Now think about this, a quarter teaspoon. I'm not even saying you can have a teaspoon. I'm not saying you can have a full spoon. I'm not saying you can have a serving. You're introducing it as one quarter teaspoon per day and seeing how you react and how you tolerate it. Do you get bloated? Do you get headachey? Do your histamine issues come up? So again, it's with ferments, 
when you're introducing them and through my protocol, it's really about dipping your toe in the water and checking what the temperature is before you throw yourself all the way in. And then you realize the water's freezing, I don't want to be here, and it's too late. Right. And so, and if someone can't tolerate the quarter teaspoon, then they keep working through the other parts of the protocol and then try again in a couple months. Exactly. You know, I think the biggest uh, importance here besides the P word probiotic is patience. You've got to have a lot of patience and and a lot of self-love too. Like saying, you know what, it's okay that I am where I'm at right now. And having positive affirmations that I am on a healing journey, and this is what I can do right now, and this is okay, and I will get there. Now, in Allison's case, and I know this is the case for a lot of people who are listening too, they may have tried different things. Um, They may have done some cleansing. They've definitely done probiotics. They've done a variety of different types of diets, but yet they're still suffering with issues. And for a lot of them, there's also slow motility and, you know, just everything is just not really working the way that it, they feel like it should. And they feel like they've done everything, right, in terms of, you know, the different herbs and the probiotics and the enzymes. And, you know, they might even be saying that, yes, they've addressed stress. But one of the other things that you talk about, which I think is so important, is this whole relation to the vagus nerve and vagal toning, because I think that could be such a missing piece for a lot of people. Can you talk about that? I'm so glad you bring that up, because I think that that is a key issue that a lot of people who are on a healing journey, they focus so much on what supplement to take, what antimicrobial, what herbal, what probiotic, and they're trying all these things. They might not be stressed in their life, but they're stressed about their disease and they're stressed about the process of how are they going to heal their disease. And that stress, and and I think also it's important to quickly point out what I call mental stress versus biophysical stress. So I have a lot of patients who, if I ask them, are you stressed? Say, no, you know, I've got a busy life, I have a busy job, but it's, you know, it's kind of, I handle it. And then they tell me what their life is like. They're rushing from meeting to meeting and they're going to bed at midnight. They have to wake up at five in the morning. There's no rest for them. And I tell them, well, do you realize that your body is biophysically stressed? And that could be affecting your vagus nerve. So think of the vagus nerve as this telephone wire connecting your brain and your internal organs. And here, specifically, since we're talking about the gut, the gut, and it communicates in both directions, but they're actually 80% more wires pointing up to the brain from the gut than the other direction. And if you're old enough to remember the old telephones that had a dial tone, so when you picked them up, there was this sound that you would hear was like a and you knew that the phone was working. Well, that same thing, you have to think, the vagus nerve needs a certain level of tone that's sending impulses in both directions, and the impulses down from the brain to the gut are controlling things like stomach acid secretion, the production of digestive enzymes, the permeability of the gut, so how leaky your gut is, and also peristalsis, or the rhythmic contractions of the small intestine and the large intestine, to get the food to move down. So you mentioned constipation. A lot of people with constipation have vagal nerve malfunction, and they need to do exercises to activate the vagus nerve. And also, very importantly, 
mindfulness exercises or practices that are going to lower stress in their body um, so that they can have normal vagal tone. And when you have normal vagal tone, what I try to explain to people is it's your body feels safe. So your body's relaxed and now it's in that rest and digest mode rather than that, you know, flee and run, flight, the sympathetic overcharge or anxious. And so we, the goal is to get people back into that vagal tone that is helping them feel better. And it's going in both directions because your gut microbiome also affects uh, vagal impulses and information from your gut, like neurotransmitters being created in your gut by your enteroendocrine cells that make serotonin, as well as the gut microbiome that's then stimulating vagal nerve receptors in the gut to send a signal back up to the brain. Um, so it's very important to realize that you cannot underestimate the importance of that piece and bypass it thinking, well, I'm doing all the right things with my diet and supplements and probiotics, so I should be getting better, but you're still biophysically stressed in your life and you're not addressing that. Well, you can't bypass that. That's another key part of the holistic healing plan for gut health issues. That, and that's why it's so important. I put it in my book. I called that section turbocharging your results. And I hope that by saying that, I teamed up with meditation teachers, with breathwork teachers. We have like three different breathwork exercises, three different meditations that are for the gut to improve gut health, but really also to improve total body wellness. It's huge. It's so, so important. Now, in terms of vagal uh, tone, what are your two favorite uh, exercises for toning? God, they can be fun. You know, like humming. Uh-huh. Love that one. Set a timer for five minutes and take deep breaths. And every time, and if you know how to do diaphragmatic breathing, which I teach in my book, but if you don't, it's, uh, you know, it's very easy to learn how to do that, to breathe with your diaphragm. And every time you exhale, you exhale with a hum. And that hum is creating a vibration in your voice box, which is exactly the vagus nerve passes on both sides of the voice box. And when you're vibrating, it's going to send a signal to the vagus nerve to help activate it. That's great. And it's so easy and fun. This is a very easy hack. And I challenge all of your listeners, like set a timer do this for five minutes. I know it's, it's, it's going to feel long because you're, you know, humming for five minutes on every exhale and you're going to hum, you're going to do long hum. So deep breath in and then slow breath out with a hum. I'm curious at the end of five minutes, I'd love to hear how they feel because there is going to be an internal shift in your body. You're going to feel more relaxed. You're going to feel in a different state. So that is a super easy way to to hack the system. The other way, which I think is unusual, is things that support the gut microbiome. And again, this is dependent on whether you can have ferments or not. Uh, but fermented foods can help also improve vagal tone by supporting the diversity of the gut microbiome and stimulating the vagus nerve through the microbiome. It's a, one that we don't often hear about but it's another avenue that's also really easy if you're at the level where you can start to introduce ferments that can help activate the vagus nerve. And there's a bunch of other ways, but including, you know, um, just doing things that help relax 
your nervous system can help reactivate the vagus nerve by taking away that over-sympathetic drive that comes with fight-or-flight response. So yoga, tai chi, meditation, all these things are important. And I think it's also important to incorporate what feels right in the moment. You know, so maybe one day you feel like humming, another day you feel like going to a yoga class. Like, listen to your body, listen to what you're desiring that's going to make you feel fulfilled inside. Really good advice, because it's almost like following your intuition, but not so much as like what decision you should make on a specific question, but it's more, like you said, feeling your body. And then if it feels good to do this, then it is in a way following your intuition. And your body's telling you what feels good. That's great. Dr. Pedre, your book is filled with so much information. I love the quiz and people can then get their personalized plan because like you said, there's really not one plan for everyone. You're speaking my language for sure because I talk about this with thyroid all the time. You know, I just love everything that you have in there and how personalized it is. I know the book comes out in April. It's on pre-order right now. And just tell everyone where they can pick up the book, how they can pre-order it, and also how they can connect with you if they wanted to contact you. The best place is going to be to go to gutsmartprotocol.com. And if they pre-order the book through there, they're going to be able to get five free special bonuses before the book comes out, including a downloadable version of the of the Gut Smart quiz. So you can start to see where, you know, if you're curious, am I mild, am I moderate, severe, you can find out immediately. And the other thing I have for your listeners, if they, you know, if they want to just dip their toe and see what is this about. They can take a sneak peek into the book with a free gift, which is one of the chapters in the book with some special surprises. And just go to gutsmartprotocol.com forward slash gift, and you'll be able to download a free copy of the book um, and get a a free copy of a free chapter and just get an idea of what the book is about and is it for you? And if it speaks to you, then I encourage you to go and and pre-order, get the special bonuses. You know, I think it's going to be worth their while. Um, It sounds like your audience would really resonate with this. Yeah. Well, just because like you said, it's more personalized than just the regular, oh yes, let's just clean everything out and eat this one way and that's it. So the personalization I think is huge and I love that. Dr. Pedre, it was so wonderful having you on. Thank you for all of this information. I know this is going to help so many people and I really appreciate everything that you do and all of your time. I appreciate you too. Thank you so much for having me on. Digestion, like most health ailments, is not a one-size-fits-all approach. Especially when combined with autoimmunity and thyroid health, it is most helpful to address it from all angles and customize as much as we can. Allison was taking lots of vitamins, and while those can certainly help, they work best when in conjunction with diet and lifestyle. Now, she was doing things to change her diet. She was eating a ton of fermented foods. And those can certainly be great for digestion, but they don't work for everyone. And for many, they can actually make things worse because of other imbalances in the gut. And so to get started, what we did is we removed those highly fermented foods and started her on a low histamine diet. We also talked about gluten. She was reluctant to remove it, because she didn't think that she had an issue with it. 
But as Dr. Pedro was explaining, I also explained to her the connection between gluten and Hashimoto's and other digestive issues. So to look at it a little bit further, we ran two tests. We did the Vibrant America Zoomers, and we specifically used the Wheat Zoomer, where we look at gluten and how the body processes gluten to see if we have any antibodies to it, and not just gluten itself, but all of the different metabolites of gluten. And there was a lot of things that came out positive on that test. And then we also ran a genetic test, the DQ2 and the DQ8, which showed that she was positive for the DQ2, meaning that genetically her body wasn't really primed to digest and process gluten. And because both tests came out with issues with gluten, we removed gluten as well. And it was helpful for her to see it on the test because as much as explanation is helpful, when she saw in black and white that there really was an issue, it was easier for her to remove it. Then we ran a stool test and a breath test and saw that she had SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Now the probiotics that she was taking were actually making it worse because her body wasn't able to handle them. And so we stopped those for a little while as well to allow things to recalibrate. The other thing we looked at is how she was dealing with stress on a day-to-day basis. She was always in a rush and she didn't take time to eat So we worked on slowing down, chewing, and also just spending a little bit more time on her, taking 15 minutes in the morning to have some quiet time, some creative time before she went on with her day. There's such a relationship between what's happening to our immune system and the gut and how it all compares to cortisol, our stress hormone. And so we started to support that with a combination of lifestyle adjustments, but also a supplement called PS150, which is one of my favorites. It's a phosphatidylserine, and it's really wonderful at lowering cortisol, and she took that in the evening. Just two months of the diet and lifestyle changes, Allison felt calmer, lighter, and was able to eliminate much better. As things were improving, we then started to support SIBO by doing six weeks of a product called FC Cytal and Dysbiocide. They're from Biotics and they work great as a natural SIBO support. And then we followed that by something called SBI Protect from Orthomolecular. And what this does is it helps to bind and remove some of the bacterial toxins called LPS. Those could be very damaging to the gut. As we were supporting this, I also optimized her thyroid. She was the low T3 type. And so we worked with her doctor to fine tune her thyroid medication to include a bit more T3. And we also used zinc and selenium to help improve her conversion of T4 to T3. This made even more of a difference. And she has significantly less gas and bloating and was able to easily go to the bathroom every day, which was such a huge win. Allison was so excited. Of course, so was I. If Allison sounds like someone you know, will you please share this episode with them? And please be sure that you're subscribed to the show so that you never miss an episode. And when it comes to your health issues, please know that the answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time on Health Mystery Solved, Thyroid and Hashimoto's Revealed. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.